Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So, Angel Dust by Faith No More it came out in June of 1992. That was just as I was graduating from high school. It was the summer before college, and this was a very important album to me. For some reason, I just loved it, and I still do. But if I rattle off a list of my favorite albums, Angel Dust kind of stands out on that list as an oddball. The album is unlike anything else. It's an unchained schizophrenic record nothing calculated there's no formula angel dust is just the work of a band a group of individuals uniquely talented individuals creating a work of art building it sculpting it the end result is difficult to describe impossible to categorize but a hell of a lot of fun to listen to so for today's episode of rock and or roll i spoke with matt wallace the man who produced every Faith No More album up through and including Angel Dust. We spoke about how the band evolved and the making of this record, including a track-by-track commentary. So check it out. Here's the conversation I had with producer Matt Wallace about Faith No More's album Angel Dust. Thanks a lot for taking the time to speak with me. We just lost Chuck Mosley last week, so yeah. my condolences on the loss of your friend. Thanks, man. Uh, uh, horrible. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you know, but he and I were in the middle of making a record together, so, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah it's horrible. Yeah. Horrible, horrible. Yeah, I talked to him on Wednesday, and by Thursday night he was dead, so, yeah. Wow. Wow. Yep. Uh, man, anyway, so, uh, okay, so, uh, Angel Dust. Yeah. Well, so Faith No More is a band that evolved dramatically from what started as a sort of weird art project, according to Roddy Bottom. That's a quote I saw by him. And then yep. from that, they become this like very professional band, I guess, you know, with a quadruple platinum album. And yep. you were there working with them ever since they were called the Sharp Young Men, right? Yep, that's true. So what was it like to see that weird art project go on to have a top 10 hit single? Well, it was, I have to say, for me personally, it was a thrill because, uh, 
you know, it's nice having a top 10 single, but it's really great to do it with someone that you kind of, quote unquote, grew up with musically together because, I mean, we, you know, I was learning to become an engineer and a producer and they were learning to become a band. And so to have that kind of success when we start off as kind of, quote unquote, infants in music was really a thrill. You know, I mean, we all had done stuff prior to meet, meeting up together. I was in bands when I was younger, since I was 13. They were doing stuff for a long time. And it was just wonderful to like kind of be there at the inception. And I mean, I was there when they were Sharp Young Men. I actually did sound for the very first Faith No Man live show at a place called the On Broadway. And they, you know, when they made a recording of that, and I kind of been with them every step of the way up through and including Angel Dust. And it's been honestly a pleasure and an honor to be a part of it because I think they're a tremendously forward-thinking band. So to me, it was just outstanding. It must have been a wild ride. <laughs> oh, yeah, very much so. Yeah, because, you know, they start off without having a real singer. It was just kind of, uh, I mean, well, first of all, they start with Sharp Young Men when they did have a singer and Mike Morris and Wade Worthington on, on keyboards. And so that was the first kind of iteration of the rhythm section with, with Mike and uh, Bill. And then they became Faith No Man without a singer, you know, I guess, Joe Pye kind of jumped in there for a moment and Courtney Love did. But the moment that Chuck Mosey joined the band, to me, that was a really big step up because Chuck really brought something to the table where he could focus in a lyrical and melodic sense what they were trying to do musically. And I think it was a really important step for them to kind of become a bigger, better band than they were prior to Chuck. And I think Chuck really contributed quite a lot to the overall aesthetic of that band. Um, you know, and so that was important. And of course, then the, uh, Change over to Patton was a, a, another big leap in different ways, and it was really, you know, uh, pretty outstanding. I think I think the real thing is a really good record, but but man, Angel Dust is just tremendous. And honestly, I have not really listened to that record since we've done. I mean, really, just today, uh, last night, today, I had to kind of listen through the songs just to kind of be able to answer some of your questions to refresh my memory because I haven't really sat and listened to it, and I'm really. I can listen to it as an audience person now because it's been 30 years, you know, and I can kind of just appreciate the, like, wow, we, that's a really cool record, you know, and before I, it would be hard for me to say that, but listening today, it's like, God, there's really myriad of inf influences. Um, and each guy was pushing so hard to do something creative and unique. And I really applaud them. I think they're just a tremendous band. I mean, really, really inspiring for me, you know? Yeah, yeah. Angel Dust is a record that I always listen to every couple months. You know, it's like never left my consciousness, I don't think. But, you know, when the real thing came out, I was in high school and honestly, I didn't really get into it. So Angel Dust was like the right. gateway for me into Faith No More. Right. That was when, when Midlife Crisis came out, that song connected with me. And then oh. uh, my friend Andrew had the got the album and he was the one with the car. So I kept hearing it in his car. And it <laughs> just was kind of an addictive record. And mm -hmm. uh, and that then I went back and got into, I got in, really got into introduce yourself. I loved that. I think yeah. To this day, I like introduce yourself a lot more than the real thing. And I think uh, yeah. musically, Angel Dust has more in common with introduce yourself than it yeah. does with the real thing. Yeah, um, I think it's a pretty fair assessment. Yeah, I think and also I think Angel has a lot more in common also with we care a lot. There's a there's a real through line and a thread of ideas that I think go back to even we care a lot just in the. Overall aesthetic, the the use of kind of Middle Eastern -y sort of inspired melodies and things like that. Uh, so yeah, and even some of the drum beats I think come back from there too. So, so the real thing was released in June of '89, but uh, Epic wasn't even a hit until a year and a half later, which is crazy yeah. to think about that it was that long before the album took off. And I think yep. the video came out in January, and then it wasn't yeah. until November that it was a hit. I don't yep. really remember how that. 
I, why was it a hit so late? I don't remember. I guess MTV oh, I just decided you. to play it, huh? I can tell you. I can tell you exactly. Okay. The old thing. Well, first of all, the band went out and they were touring like crazy. They're going across the United States and getting some response. Then they did a couple tours over to England, and England really got them. And so I think what they did is every time they'd go to England, they'd come back to the states with this kind of momentum and say, "Hey, you know, people in England get us. They love us." And I think Americans were really slow to catch on. And yes, MTV said, "If we can be part of the editing of Epic, we will put it on MTV." Well. They helped, but then they basically played it on 120 minutes, which was the late night show thing, like you know, two or three times. That's all they did. And then they honestly they shelved it. It's really fascinating because MTV didn't really support the band early on, and even Warner Brothers, who had jumped on board, you know, because they were the band's initially signed to Slash, but even Warner Brothers said, "Listen, we love this record. We think it's great, but radio's not going to play it because this kind of music has never been played on the radio." And it's really a testimony to Faith No More touring and touring and, and literally earning a fan at a time at every show. And and uh, they really created this groundswell. I think what ultimately happened is after that groundswell, radio was kind of forced to play it because I think people probably called in and said, can we hear the song? And then ultimately MTV was literally forced to play, put Epic on rotation because there was such a you know, kind of tidal wave of people wanting to hear this kind of music. And up until that point, that, that kind of music, you know, quote unquote rap metal or whatever you want to call it, was never heard on radio. And again, Warner Brothers is like, hey, I don't know if, you know, radio's not going to play this. And also, if you listen to that song, not only is it quote unquote rap metal, but it's got a 45 second instrumental section where the drums, the bass, and the guitar are all soloing. That's just unheard of for a top 10 song. So it's really a testimony to the band touring like crazy and earning fan after fan and finally i think the world just kind of gave in and said yep you guys are right because the, the band and i always thought that was a hit song in fact every song i think a lot of the songs we thought were should have been hits that we did together but that one in particular and um and finally the world came around so it was really really a, a testimony to the band's gut instinct and and their tenacity that made it happen right and so then the after the album's already been out for over a year, that's when they first start to like capitalize on the success and then they're they put out more videos and then they're on like what the Bill and Ted soundtrack and yep. Yep. and then uh and then Mike Patton does Mr. Bungle in between there too. He gets back yep. with that band. So uh when they go into the studio to make Angel Dust now obviously they've had the big success and Mike has done Mr. Bungle and now Mike is a full-fledged member from the beginning of the process and um so i guess he had obviously a lot more creative input on angel dust than he did on the real thing yeah and but we also have uh jim martin apparently is like unenthused or dissatisfied with what's going on when they're when they're writing these songs um was that from the start or did that kind of did his dissatisfaction develop over the course of the making of the album or or how did that work well, you'll have to speak to Jim, I think, if you get a chance to kind of get it from him. But here's my impression, and that is, I think it was like three weeks before we started making Angel Dust, Jim's dad died. And I had said to Jim, listen, we should just take a couple months off and come back once things have kind of settled for you and your family. Because he had to kind of take over his dad's business. Obviously, he had to deal with the emotional repercussions of losing his father. And I felt that it would have been better to just pause. And I mean, for me as a producer, that sucked because I had a you know, two month window of time that I already kind of had spoken for by working with Faith No More. And I was willing to kind of give that up and scrounge for the work to, you know, fill in while we waited for Jim to be in a better place. 
Um, and I think the band did the same thing. They said, hey, are you sure you want to do this? But but in typical Jim fashion, because he's kind of a, you know, for lack of a better term, more of a kind of a, a man's man, you know, kind of a bit of bit of machismo. And he's just like, you know, fuck you guys. Uh, you know, I can take care of my own business and I'm ready to work. So, you know, stop stop telling me what to do. And so that's what we did. We kind of plowed forward. But honestly, in retrospect, we should have just stopped. But But we went with Jim's assessment. And even to the point where, the band who were initially rehearsing in San Francisco moved the rehearsal to Oakland, California to be closer to Jim. So it was a commute for them. I was in the San Francisco at the time. So we were all commuting to Oakland to be closer to Jim, uh, who I think was living in Castro Valley at the time to work with him. But he also didn't show up to a lot of the rehearsals. So again, I think it's, it's because of the impact of his father dying was a big thing. But I, and I just wish that he could have just said, Hey, I'm tapped. Let's just wait until I can get to better footing, so we, I can be really there for the record. So his his uh, reaction to the band's music is either truly he thought they're making a, a, a quote unquote you know gay disco record, or it was a defensive tactic because he felt so bad about his dad and he couldn't just say, "Listen, I'm tapped. Let's just let's just wait." So he may have just been kind of talking shit to kind of cover for the fact that he was hurting. I don't know, you know, honestly. Yeah, that gay disco comment is troubling considering Roddy is gay <laughs> and he would say yeah, something yeah. like that. Sure. I mean, I don't think Roddy would even take an offense to that, but to right. me, just the, the, the thing that was that was missing in that exact comment that Jim made, and, that, and I used to say, I used to say, listen, if you bring your big boots and your ugly guitar and throw it on top of this music, it won't be quote unquote gay disco. We need the balance of that heft and that weight that's really essential to to the balance of who faith the more are because you know you got a couple guys who will certainly push into a more more pop and melodic direction and and personally they like that kind of music but but we needed jim with his you know black sabbath and corrosion of conformity kind of stuff along with mike borden's influence of black sabbath to kind of balance out this thing so that it didn't become too quote-unquote light or too pop that would have not been who faith the more was and so it was essential that Jim came in there and and really kind of swung the bat to do what he needed to do and that was my frustration is that I felt like he he kind of acquiesced to this for some reason he acquiesced to this idea that it was a quote unquote gay disco record which he's never done before even when they did more melodic and poppy things he always kind of brought in the big nasty guitar which we relied on we we needed Jim to do that and that was why it was so aggravating for us to make the records because the band and I knew what we wanted and we needed from him and we wanted from him what he always brought to the table and the fact that he couldn't or wouldn't was so so frustrating it may led to a lot of acrimony but there's also there's a lot of heavy guitar on the album though it's so oh, yeah. it's yeah there it's, is yeah there is but but a lot of his in, initial instincts were to play more lighter melodic things i mean he, he did a lot of things that were more kind of and so i think it took a lot of encouragement from certainly bill and i to say listen we you know you got to play more like jim plays you know and and to the point that bill and i even sat down on an eight track stu uh studio with, with his with the basic tracks and kind of came up with guitar like you know rhythm things and heavy stuff just to play to jim say look we need this which is just ludicrous that bill and i are trying to t teach jim martin how to be like jim martin i mean that just is it's just doesn't make any sense in any world ever, but 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 we didn't know how the plot got so lost and why he couldn't see that his place in the band was so essential and that we needed him to do what Jim Martin always did, and that was why it was kind of con confounding to, to all of us. Yeah, I, I saw an interview on YouTube where Jim 
I think his exact quote is everyone had gotten fat and conservative and frightened of doing something different, which is really a confusing comment since I think almost everyone thinks Angel Dust is very different. That's one thing about it. So I don't it's really... entirely different. It's so different to the point that the sla- the people at Slash Records came in and just said, you know, you should call this uh, album uh, Career Suicide, you know, <laughs> right? and said, I hope you didn't buy any houses because they were afraid because because we did not make The Real Thing Part 2, which they could have done and been quite successful at. But but typical of Faith in the Morning, a testimony to their their spirit of kind of pushing forward and trying to do unique things. They did not make the real thing part two. They made a very, very challenging record, very creative. And for Jim to think that everyone's sitting around getting fat is I think is if he really said that, that's completely misses the mark. These guys were pushing so hard to really expand the horizons and, and and challenge their listeners this band has always challenged their listeners that's what they do and they really did an excellent job on this record and the fact that you know, it was nominated like 10 years ago in crying crying magazine as the most influential of all time it was number one because it influenced so many bands after that i mean the the ripple effect and the impact of this album can be seen on so many bands you know um uh, that Faith the More challenged their listeners, and they had a sensibility of of light melodic stuff, but also dark, brutal music in between. And 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 they they kind of followed their muse, and they just they challenged their listeners, saying, "Listen, you can you can ex- understand this kind of music. Just trust us. Go with this journey, and 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 we're following kind of our path, and you can come with us." And I think they've always done that. And, and for yeah, for Jim to even think that this is anything of of them sitting around being fat on their asses, it completely misses the mark by by a long shot. Yeah, I'm I'm really confused as about all this stuff he has said about the album. It doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense. I'm just I think I just can't see it from his perspective. I don't really know where he's well, coming from. I I don't think he, I don't think anyone knows where he's coming yeah. from. And I again I think it's a it might be a defensive posturing because of what happened with his dad, and we you know we we should have just stopped and waited. I don't know. I don't really know. But 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 I I think this album. Uh, really stands the test of time more than it pretty much anything else I've, I've ever produced. And I think it's been groundbreaking. Uh, and obviously, you know, the United States didn't quite get it. It didn't sell very well in the States, but really did well in, in England and the rest of Europe. So anyway. Yeah, it actually did better than the real thing in the rest of the world. Oh, but, yeah. But just not in, the, in America. It, yeah. I don't think it ever even went platinum, which is crazy. No, no, I think it, I think it went gold. Yeah, that's yeah. about it. Yeah, so you talked about the record label saying it was career suicide. I mean, usually if a band is following up a big hit, there would be a lot of pressure uh, internally and externally. But I would think the guys at Faith No More probably weren't putting pressure on themselves no. to, to have another hit. But nope. so how much were the record label trying to interfere that they just kind of throw up their hands? Because oh. how are you going to influence these guys, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they you know they made their, their opinions known. That was good. But I think they are pretty well aware that Faith the More is not a band that you can kind of tell them where to go because they right. they just kind of follow they really follow an internal kind of kind of whatever muse or perspective or something and it's really hard to kind of get in the way of that and also by the way that it's really interesting this record is the first time probably the only time in my career where separate from them I really wanted to distance myself from the real thing because I felt like I did a really bad job of of mixing and engineering that record, I felt it sounded really terrible, and I, you know, it sounded bad on my home stereo, my car stereo. Fortunately, it sounded amazing on, on MTV and sounded amazing on radio, so that part's good. But I wanted to get away from the over-compression, over-high-end hype that I did, so I felt that way of wanting to make a different kind of record. And interestingly, the band was trying to distance themselves from that whole kind of funk 
metal or rap metal thing that they were kind of saddled with that whole you know right. moniker they chafed at that this is a band that does not want to be called a certain kind of music and so they artistically went in a different direction it's really fortunate that we we kind of came together to work on the record they wanted to distance themselves from the record and as did i and i it, it, from a technical aspect did did pretty much the 180 degree opposite of what i did on the real thing and really went for more low end and less compression and less high end and i, I mean to a point that i i really went overboard of not using compression because i did not want to do that again and so it was a really interesting kind of kismet or joining of similar forces to basically walk into a room and say yep I don't want to do that record again. And I'm like, I don't want to do that record again either. You know, and it was really interesting because I would have never uh, anticipated that. Well, I think you did a great job on the, on angel dust. Uh, it sounds great. And it's so, the, it's so full and uh, yeah. I don't know how to describe it, but it's got, there's a lot of go. There's so much going on in the background that it's, yes. it's got a great bed that everything is resting on too. So it's, it, yeah, it's really great. There's nothing thin about it at all. You know, it's, right. yeah. Well, uh, well, another th crazy thing is that between the real thing and Angel Dust from 1989 to 1993, that's when Alternative replaced hard rock in the right. mainstream, and obviously Faith No More fit in way better with Alternative than they ever sure. did with hard rock. So they yes. were in like a real unique position when this record came out to like capitalize, whereas a lot of other bands from that era, their careers were destroyed. Angel Dust were in a great position, or Faith No More were in a great position to really capitalize on that change in the mainstream unfortunately for some reason the record didn't catch on the way i think it should have i agree but i think yeah i think uh the uh the uh the description of alternative music i don't think any band in the world fits the idea of alternative music better than faith the more because they were alternative to pretty much everything whereas even even the alternative bands from like from uh, seattle so like that still had a there's a kind of a you know hard rock kind of ethos and there's a sound to it and they they were you know, very, very talented, but they were kind of reprocessing and, and it, kind of taking these influences and kind of turning their own thing, but it still had a basis from a certain era, whereas I think Faith No More really just sounds like it came out of the weirdest Martian landscape. Like, what the hell were these guys thinking? I mean, seriously, and I'm, I'm saying that as a fan, not so much as the producer of the band, but I think they were just like, they were really the definition of alternative because they were alternative to pretty much everything, even people that want to embrace them like you know hard rock people or pop people or whoever it was they were just like no we are not who you think we are at all and i know you like certain aspects and certain facets of this band but we're actually alternative to that and i think that they always have always challenged themselves and their listeners so yeah so what was the vibe like in the studio when the album was being made were they getting along were they working together or uh yeah i mean all four of them were working together you know roddy bill uh, Mike Borden and uh, and uh, Patton were all, you know, yeah, they're all working together. They all were pretty much Faith the More as Faith the More has always been, which is like a really tight unit, incredibly focused, working really hard. And it's really fascinating because I think people imagine like, you know, rock band people like being drunk and stoned in the studio. But man, these guys are just always have always been focused, no screwing around. They come and prepare. They're just ready to roll. I mean, these guys were like, were like lean boxers. I mean, they, there was no fucking around. You know, they were like they knew what they wanted to do, and and had a trajectory. And there was nothing that was certainly nothing internal was going to stop them. They weren't going to trip over their own, you know, shoelaces. Or, you know, because they were too high or too drunk to accomplish anything. They were always very, very had their eye on trying to break through and and and, and be a viable force musically. So, uh, but yeah, as, as as a unit between them, 
they were really, really focused. I was pretty much in their team as well. But, of course, I had to try to balance things out and be on Jim's team as much as I could. And I think that was the, where the, the big rift was, is that, that he was playing stuff that really wasn't what the band was hoping. And I guess you could argue that Jim was being, quote-unquote, alternative to what he's always done before, uh, if you want to play devil's advocate. But the fact of the matter is that we didn't need another melodic uh, part in a, a, a band that was already kind of drenched in melodies, whether it's Roddy's keyboard playing or Mike Mike Patton's singing, we needed someone to bring in the heft. We needed someone to bring in the the anvil or the you know the anchor or the weight, so that it didn't tip over into being too frilly and too melodic. We needed that kind of ugly. We just needed that ugly thing that Jim uh, was. We counted on bringing. Had Jim's uh, role in the songwriting process been reduced from the previous albums, or is, was uh, that part of the problem? Or was well, it... I think yeah, I think that's part of the problem because he wasn't around in rehearsals. Right. I mean, I think that if he was able to be at rehearsals more, maybe he would have shifted the record into more of the shape of what he wanted or thought was appropriate. And and maybe you can argue that that him being in rehearsal may have changed the tone of the record. You know, that's a that's a possibility, or at the very least, he would have had more ownership of the record and it would have been harder for him to call it gay disco because he would have been invested in it. But the, but the fact of the matter that he wasn't around, uh, again, I mean, we understand it. His dad died. He's taken over his dad's business. I mean, th- nobody would argue with him that that was a, a huge blow to him and his family. And we all empathize with him. But, but again, the fact that he wouldn't just say, yeah, let's take a break. And we kind of plowed forward because he said we should. And then he wasn't around is, is like, he kind of sunk himself really. You know, he should have just, I don't know. He 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 contributed to what happened ultimately, and uh, and none of us wanted that. We all wanted Jim on board. We needed Jim to do what Jim has always done. Really, I saw the band on this tour, and it was a really great show. But a guy, a kid, jumped up on stage. It was in the encore, and the security guards like brutally tackled him. And then Roddy and Mike just threw, uh, Mike threw the mic down. They both just started fighting with the security guards because they didn't right. like the way they roughed up that kid. <laughs> Sure. And then the whole show devolved into like a near riot where at the end Mike Patton said burn this place down and then the, the whole crowd the you know we the whole crowd stayed and the security just lined the front of the stage and it was like yeah. a standoff. It yeah. was crazy. But yeah. yeah, Jim was still in the band like for the whole tour, right? So sure. um yeah. I wonder if it would have been different if the album had been more successful. If no, they, no, you don't think so. No, no, I don't think that has anything to do with anything. This band has never done what they do because of success. It's yeah. not success doesn't predicate you know whether you want to be in the band or what kind of music you want to make. This is the one band that I've worked with of all the bands that don't really pay attention to that stuff at all. They want to be successful. They work really, really hard to be successful, but they're not going to condescend to anybody and they're not going to acquiesce their vision. And they're going to always you know they're always going to tilt the scales towards creativity and. And you know any kind of commercialism is always going to take a back seat, and that's just who this band has always been from day one. So I don't think success has anything to do with it because they were successful. They had the real thing that was successful, and that and you know uh, all that external stuff doesn't have any bearing at all with these guys. I mean, these guys are the most kind of I don't know. They just kind of march their own drummer more than anybody I've ever met as individuals and also as a unit. So to me, any any chance of this band being damaged would, would could only come from within, which is what ultimately happened. I guess I just mean that maybe if they had had more momentum coming off of the album cycle and the tour, maybe they would have stuck together. Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. I, I mean, I still think, I don't care how successful this record could have been in the United States. I think the fact that uh, they were not 
in sync or on the same wavelength while making the record is indicative of, of a of a pretty substantial rift you know i've never the right. band has never had that before jim always came in and did what jim did and we are we are all work together and i've never had never seen the band be so torn apart and, and especially in a in a time when you know four-fifths of the band and myself were like we saw what we thought was the obvious picture like oh this is what you need to do and jim for whatever reason couldn't see that and i think that's a problem of perception or something i don't know what happened but again success has nothing to do with the fact that that look this record was made in a vacuum there was no success or failure of angel dust until it came out and right. people heard it. but right. but basically while making the record uh and for the band the success is us completing a great record after, whatever happens after that is going to happen but we did what we thought was it was the best we all could do and we worked really hard i mean i i, I you know these guys are all you know, consummate musicians, really prepared. Mike Patton was ferociously prepared for vocals. He came in every day, absolutely knew what he was going to sing. He had the lyrics together. He had the harmonies and the melodies, everything, the phrasing. The He really knew. And I think this is the first record that Patton really owned it. And I think this is really a Mike Patton, you know, he was really part of the band now. And, and I think it's an evidence of everything they did. And I think that he helped steer in the direction it went to and i think the fact that he even got to do the mr bungle record in the interim was really a smart move in retrospect because that allowed him to kind of go okay i can still be in mr bungle do my thing and so now that i've got that confidence i can really dive into um angel dust because the real thing is really uh, an album about mike Patton being i mean a lot of the lyrics are about him being conflicted with you know basically leaving his old original band and then being part of this other band there's a lot of lyrics that that kind of reflect that Whereas Angel Dust was really patent just doing what he does best. And there was no weirdness about whether or not he lost anything with Mr. Bungle because he made a record with Mr. Bungle. So now that freed him up to be just like, oh, I'm in faith no more. I can I can go 100 percent into this, you know, so right, right. in retrospect, that was essential at the time. It was really frustrating for the guys in faith no more. And for me, too, it's like, well, dude, you know, pick a pick a fucking band. Which one are you in? But right. but I, I think it was really smart to kind of allow him to express that part of who he is was as an artist at, at that time because then it allowed him to say oh will you guys let me do that well now yes i now you've given me that kind of freedom now i'm I'm 100 percent in and now we're going to make a record and, and it was a stunning album right and he was only 19 or 20 when he joined the group right so yeah yeah he was 19 years old right and he wrote all the lyrics on the real thing right but he just kind of everything else was already done right so yeah yeah, the arrangements were done, the the chords, the, everything were already done. So when he said, "Hey, can we make this part longer or shorter, changes than that?" the band's like, "Nope, it's the way it is." So Patton, in two weeks, wrote all the melodies and all the lyrics, which is absolutely amazing. That at nineteen he could pull together, and there's some ridiculously good lyrics on that record. I think, I think uh, the song, the real thing. I think there's so many songs on there that just are 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 belie the fact that he was only a nineteen year old. I mean, he was really was something else. So. Very impressive. And I read a quote where Billy said he didn't like Mike the first couple of years he was in the band, which I thought was yeah. interesting. Well, that makes sense because Patton joined the band, but I think he, his his heart was always still with Mr. Bungle. He used to wear Mr. Bungle t-shirts, and you know he he probably felt like he was kind of torn between the two bands, and he was kind of you know joining you know not the enemy but a different band and it wasn't his primary band so i'm sure there was always this kind of weird thing with Patton. but then by the time angel dust rolled around it was like man they, they were all completely focused except for of course jim but but the other guys were all knew where they were going right okay so do you want to go track by track through the record yes 
So the album kicks off with Land of Sunshine, with he- which yep. had the working title, The Funk Song. And yep. like th- this is an example where it's the foundation of the song seems to be the bass and the keyboards, and the guitar is kind of a supplemental thing. I don't know if that's part of what Jim Martin had a problem with or not, but... Um, when this was just an instrument, instrumental piece, I'm sure it would have been hard to imagine what Mike was going to end up doing with it, because yeah. the the way the vocals are like pieced together, like line by yeah. line, and he, you know, with different voices, mm-hmm. um, it, it's so cool, but it's also so weird and hadn't really been. I mean, I can't think of another example. I guess he sort of did it on Epic and stuff, but it's much more pronounced on this record where. He, he switches between different voices you know so many times in one song and like line yeah. by line and but yeah. it really works that's what yeah. it's a really adventurous way to do it but it works so well i love this song i think it's so great and you know i love how the lyrics were from fortune cookies and a personality test sure. or something and he put it all together and so i guess you know what was that process like of putting the vocals together on, on a song like this well, first of all, let me just address the idea of the foundation of the song. The foundation of every single Faith No More song pretty much ever has always been bass, drums, and keyboards. For me, they always kind of start there for the most part, at least from my perspective okay. in, in the auditorium. And then Jim came in and we always kind of add his thing to it. So for me, uh, I don't think the guitars are ever supplemental, ever. Here's how to order. Too, but as to uh, Patton and, this, and the the kind of intention of the song, it's really from yeah fortune cookies and also this whole kind of Dianetics uh, Scientology personality test. So he he did this personality test, and that's what's what the different voices are, you know, in in there uh, is that that he's kind of going back and forth between fortune cookie that he found and this personality test thing, which 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 the Scientology people do to kind of discern if you you know are right for the religion or whatever it is. So um, and and for me, it was not. Uh, I think you'd ask like if it's a kind of a tedious process, but for me it wasn't. Working in Faith and More is never tedious. It certainly requires a lot of focus and dedication and a tremendous amount of patience and you know being able to be there for every moment. So it, it's never it feels like tedium for me because that has a negative connotation. Whereas they were really just uh, you know Patton was was again absolutely prepared. I think he he did all of the, for every song on Angels. Uh, I think he had a four-track cassette recorder at home, and I think what he did is he uh, he basically took our, our basic tracks after we recorded them, and then he went home and he worked out all the melodies, all the harmonies, and the lyrics and everything. So he was probably the most focused guy 
certainly after the basic tracks were laid down, he knew exactly what he wanted to do. And that's kind of what he did. So like this song, he brought it to the studio, like fully formed and ready. Every song. Wow. Every every song he came in and he knew exactly what I wanted to do. I mean, there were only, there were very few times when I was like, Oh, I think that harmony's kind of out there. You know, can we kind of bring it in a little bit or things like that? But, but my input was, was, was pretty much just supporting what he was doing, encouraging him and, uh, helping him kind of accomplish what he heard in his brain, you know, in his head, you know, like trying to get that out there and the different voices and the different, you know, sonic aesthetics that we worked on. But, but he, he there was no, you know, I'm going to write this in the studio thing, which, which unfortunately happened a lot with Chuck, you know, their, their previous singer, but with Patton, he came in both on the real thing and Angels Us, he knew exactly what he was going to do. I don't think Patton's ever the kind of guy that's going to like, you know, cram while in the studio like you know while you know work on the lyrics and then and then just sing them i think he, he, he invests a lot more time energy and and guts into these things and uh it's really it's really apparent certainly on angel dust so was a song like land of sunshine where the vocals recorded line by line or did he switch back and forth between voices and keep going no we, we kind of did like he would sing through uh, as i remember he would sing through like chunks of it where he'd kind of get most of the whatever the primary voices then we'd go back and and sing the secondary voices and things like that so we i don't ever remember going line by line with him because i okay. i just i just abhor that approach i don't i don't like it at all so he in my if my memory is correct we, we would go through and he'd sing down kind of the primary line either as a final vocal or even as a guide vocal then we'd go back and kind of do the accents and the different voices and the different uh tonalities and things like that So the next song, Caffeine, is heavier, at least heavier, more guitar-driven, and but it's the same kind of thing where Mike is doing the different voices. Did you feel like he was consciously embodying different characters for each song? Did you guys talk about that? Was he was he putting himself in a different mindset for each song, or? Yeah, I mean, I think he was always doing that. I mean, it's not the kind of thing that we'd ever talk about. It's the it's a weird thing with Faith and the Morgans. I was I've been with these guys for so long. I and this may be me just being totally high on crack or something, but I feel like a lot of the work we did together was pretty instinctual, and I don't remember us ever having to sit down too much and talk about concept, you know, and aesthetic. I think it was the kind of thing that they had a pretty defined idea what they wanted to do. I had some ideas here and there, but I was really just kind of focused uh, to kind of bring what they wanted to to light. I mean, if you go back to We Care A Lot, I had a lot more input, I think, in kind of production and all the weird things. I, I kind of did a lot of that stuff on that on We Care A Lot, a lot more so. Whereas as, as, uh, on Angel Dust, it was really, you know, also now that we have Patton on board, who's a real, real force of nature, I didn't have to kind of, you know, prop things up or try to create uh, production to make songs interesting. I don't think I had to do that as much anymore. I think it was the, the band kind of grew into their own as, as musicians and Patton as a, as a vocalist and a narrator and a, you know, a character. They're, they're all developed. So I my job was to pretty much stay out of the way, jump in when they really, really needed it and uh, just kind of help them kind of realize the best record they could. So I, I, you know, I was more into like making sure that you know, the arrangements are good, you know, doing the, any edits that were needed. But again, these guys knew. I mean, Pat, Pat Patton was so focused and committed. And this song is an interesting one because to get into the mindset, I mean, your, your question about mindset, he, I think it was like he went for like two or three days without sleeping, uh, I think during the writing of this song and then also to record the vocals and so he was in a mindset of being severely sleep deprived 
and I think that really helped lyrically, and it really helped with the the delivery because he was, you know, basically just dead on his feet. And he would come in after being up like, you know, for a day or two, and with with his his cassette demo, and like, okay, let's do this, you know. And uh, so I think that was really uh, kind of where that came from. <laughs> wow! So he prepared himself like an actor. Almost. He did. He really did. I like think a he, method, I, method actor. <laughs> I think this is one of the rare songs where he did the method actor thing because there's other songs like whatever I guess RV or whatever the hell the other songs are that <laughs> yeah. he kind of just took on a, a persona. Um, but this one, he was really more yeah, where where you you did the did that thing. So it was uh, pretty interesting. That's amazing. More method actor. Wow. Yep. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey, it's 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So the next song, Midlife Crisis, the working title was Madonna, I guess because Mike kind of says the lyrics were kind of inspired by Madonna. I guess he was watching her and thinking she's going through a midlife crisis. I don't yeah. know, but was this, so this track was probably mostly put together by Roddy. Yeah, midlife crisis is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, songs are named, like, a lot of times, you know, Madonna or, you know, some of the, the working titles they do are, are like Carpenters. Those are usually because of the music sounds like that kind of thing, I think. But maybe with Madonna, you know, Patton had lyrics early on uh, for the song. That's why it was named Madonna, I'm not quite sure. But, uh, but it's really interesting. That's a song that we all really liked, and we thought that you know could conquer the universe. And obviously, the, the the song never connected that well in America. But I will say, having seen them live, what was it two or so years ago, when they're playing and they stop on, I think it's the second chorus, and the audience sings the entire chorus, a cappella, was a testimony to the, this band's vision. I mean, here you got a theater full of like you know three or four thousand people singing this chorus, which is just like. It was mind-blowing to me that that, that that finally happened. You know, we felt that it should have happened 20 years prior, but but the fact that it could happen, and I just stood there, I almost started crying. It's like, wow, the whole audience gets it. They get this band, and they're singing the entire chorus a cappella. It was really, really inspired. I love this song. It's the, it's the song that made me a Faith No More fan. know was it the label's choice or the band's choice for that to be the first single or was that just a 
was it a no-brainer or was it? Uh, yeah, I don't know if there's any no-brainers with these guys because nothing really it, it indicates as being like a total pop song. I don't think, uh, right. but but I mean, certainly the band and I were big fans of it. We probably thought it was a single. I don't know what the label was thinking. Uh, again, at that point in time, I think we were, you know, a little more. I think Warner Brothers was kind of a little more in the picture than than the previous record, which was just Slash Records. So I'm not sure, you know, but I'm sure someone at, at Slash or Warner Brothers kind of said this is the song to go with. But, I, I, you know, I, I certainly didn't have any input on that. So the next song, RV, working title, Macaroni and Cheese, I guess my first question was, is that is Roddy playing a real piano or is that the keyboard? Okay, well, first of all, the working title, Macaroni and Cheese, is interesting because from what I remember, that song was called Change My Bag initially. That's what, what uh, Jim Martin certainly called it. So uh, it could be Macaroni and Cheese, but I, I can look through all the Change old, My uh, Bag? Bag, B-A-G. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's what Jim called it? Why did he call it that? Oh, I don't know. I think that was, that was the... That was the working title. I mean, I, I can find some of this stuff. Uh, RV, I can look at my uh, my my rough mixes, but I, I'm pretty sure that's what it uh, it was because it was you know he always had kind of weird names, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that was at one point in time called that. Okay. So I think the chords are real piano, but the melody really sounds like the sampled piano to me. So okay. which is kind of typical. We did that on Epic, the same thing where where I think Roddy played the real chords on the left side of the piano for the outro and Bill played the melody on the Emacs sampler on the right side. So I think this is kind of a follow-up to that same kind of thing. So what Mike does with this song is kind of insane. Yeah. <laughs> really. Yeah. I, so I wonder... I, I guess I saw an interview where Roddy liked it, though. So, so yeah. He, yeah, so the... So that's good that Mike would do something really nuts with a piece of music and the band were, you know, behind it. So... I mean, well, it yeah, works. Yeah. I love the song. So yeah, I mean, look, I think the whole the whole idea of this band was to pretty much make the kind of music they wanted to make. I mean, they always did that, even when they started as a quote unquote art band. And I don't think they ever acquiesced. I mean, I think they always kind of did what they did. And I know there were moments that were frustrating because people didn't quote quote unquote get them, you know. And they 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 thought they were making pop music, even though they were making really really challenging music. And so, you know, for me, I don't know. It just seems like. Yeah, I don't know. I just think they, they always did what they want to do. So I can't imagine anyone in the band, you know, thinking anything other than, you know, bravo, because I think Patton always kind of just did what he did. And I think they, as individuals, always wanted someone who could kind of do the different personas or someone who could definitely bring something unique to the table, which Patton did in spades. And, and the, I think the fact that Chuck Mosley pretty much was Chuck Mosley and he wore his heart on his sleeve. And a lot of those lyrics he wrote for the We Care A Lot and Introduce Yourself were very much more kind of... Uh, about him, you know, kind of about him or his friends, and there was an emotional undercurrent. Whereas, with once Patton got on board, they were more, maybe a little more cerebral, you know, and sometimes took on more personas and things like that. So, so when Patton be, be, did a persona, he went all the way in. He became that persona, which was which is really exciting to see, you know, and and to see someone who could actually do that.
walking alone. Nailed on crosses. I think it's time to talk to my kids. I just tell them what my daddy told me. You ain't never gonna amount to nothing. With RV, I think he did that thing where he took on a persona, which is and, and not a. And by the way, he's open to taking on personas that aren't particularly appealing. You know, he's not like taking on a thing where the guy's like going to save the world or be Superman. He's taking on like dirty, grimy, you know, the seamier side of life. And 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 not, I'm not saying that I swallows that, but I'm saying for RV, you know, where he's really just taking on this thing where you're just like, oh, I wouldn't want to hang out with that guy. But man, what an interesting you know, character and perspective. Yeah. And <clears throat> it also feels like in a way it's funny, but it doesn't seem like he's trying to be funny. <laughs> it seems no. like he's just to be weird. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think yeah. he's trying to be funny at all. No. I mean, I think fan liked it and they, they, they found some humor in it, but with Pat and I don't remember it being like, it wasn't the kind of thing he'd do a vocal take and he and I'd be chuckling, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think we were just trying to get into that place. And I think there is some humor in there. Maybe as a, as a as a voyeur as a listener but i don't think the hum- let me put it this way the narrator doesn't see the humor right i think the narrator is living the life and i think us listeners and us people who who get to look into that guy's life can maybe see some humor in it or even some some pathos they're like oh my god this is really a sad funny story this guy's such a loser but but i, I don't think that that was the feeling when we we're making the vocal i think when we we're doing the the vocal it was a kind of a, a snapshot or a moment in time of someone who doesn't see the humor. They're just living this life. And us as the observers can kind of go, whoa, <laughs> that's kind of, you know, nervous laughter. Oh, that's kind of a strange thing. <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? But the guy was not in on it. The narrator was not in on it. We as a listener or the audience could be in on it, you know? Right, right. So the next song, Smaller and Smaller, I, I wrote to you that it's like death metal Pink Floyd. Because when I was listening to it the other day, I was really thinking, I hear like Pink Floyd the wall in this song. And just mm-hmm. like like the atmosphere of it and yep. the way it's produced and recorded. And, um, you know, I mean, that was, how much of a conscious effort was it to to make these songs so full and have so much background and atmosphere? You know what I mean? Right. I, I think, I don't know if there's a conscious uh, decision to do that, but I think this is, let me put it this way. I think that Angel Dust is the sound the band always wanted to make. Mm-hmm. I think I think Angel Dust, that kind of textural, layers, melodicism, weight, are, are what the band always aspired to do, but maybe couldn't quite accomplish it yet as musicians. Maybe I couldn't accomplish it as a, as a producer or co-producer. Uh, but I think they always want to make the biggest record possible. Uh, we care a lot. We did that under a budget. We did that album in six days, including mixing. So we didn't have the time to really dive into it. Introduce yourself. You know, I think the band was still trying to find their their feet. Uh, you know, the real thing. I think they were kind of getting closer to. It. But I think I think Angel Dust is the first time for me anyway that the band was had the money because I think we finally had a decent budget. All the other albums were done kind of on shoestring budgets. But I think this is the first time we had the budget and the time to kind of go okay. What would happen if we had the reins 100%, we had the resources to go wherever we wanted to go, what kind of record could we make? And I think that's what sets Angel Dust apart from all the other ones because, you know, there was a, there's a density and a thickness and a otherworldliness to it because Roddy was allowed to do whatever he wanted to do on keyboards and, and Bill on bass and Mike on drums and Mike Patton on vocals, certainly, you know. Everybody, and, and Jim was allowed that. He just maybe didn't quite see the vision yet or couldn't step up to it but uh 
But I think they always want to make a record with this kind of grandeur or this kind of panorama, you know, or cinematic kind of aesthetic. I think they always want to do it. And I think we just were able to finally kind of, quote unquote, get it right, you know. Um, so and I love your assessment of Death Metal Pink Floyd. I think that's a really good assessment of, of that song. Yeah. And you said uh, those are great words, density and thickness, to for what yeah. I'm trying to describe. And then you said cinematic, which because I was sitting here thinking like each of these songs is like its own short film. Where, yeah, you know, each of them have like a completely different narrative and yeah, there's like a story yeah. being told and they're each so unique and separate from each other, but then it works yeah. really well together too. So it's pretty yeah. amazing. And I think, yeah, I think that the, uh, you know, I think the, 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 the biggest addition on top of the original Faith the More kind of sonic template or foundation was that Patton really was just taking the vocals and melodies to a place that kind of, you know, kind of equally matched what the band was trying to accomplish. I mean, I know Roddy and Bill and, and Borden were always kind of pushing for this kind of thing. And I think that, that, and it's also not too far a sonic tapestry from what they were sort of doing with Pills for Breakfast and as the worm, worm turns on We Care A Lot. I mean, there's a through line there. You can kind of hear that kind of Middle Eastern-y kind of influence. It's something that's always been a part of who the band, you know, is, you know. Right. And the next song, Everything's Ruined, is, you know, the whole song tells a story. It does feel like a little movie, you know, in, in a song. And yeah. the, to me, this feels like the most intricately written song on the album. There's so many right. parts to it. And right. it, it's so melodic and great. I really love this song. I think it's just absolutely brilliant. And mm. the guitar tone, when the mm. heavy guitar comes in, is so great. Yeah. Um, just everything. The production is amazing. The whole... The way the song is put together, I love it so much. I mean, it must have felt great to create something like this in the studio because it's pretty brilliant. Yeah. Thanks. I think so. I think, you know, uh, I think you're, everything you're saying is correct. And I think that, um, you know, this is the band's fourth full length album. And I think they really, at this point in time, became kind of confident in their individual and also the band vision they had. And I think they, you know, they all worked so diligently to write and play and perform and all this stuff. They worked so hard. And so finally, on record number four, I think that they had the confidence. We had the financial resources to really stretch out, and, I, and I, to me, it's uh, it's such a testimony to their vision that they saw many years prior, and they kept just kind of doggedly, you know, with dogged determination, kept you know, kind of marching towards this thing, even though the rest of the world didn't quite always get what they're doing. Record label didn't always quite get what they're doing, but they they just followed their guts, and I, I just I really admire this band big time. 
It's really unfortunate that a, a song this great and majestic got like a really cheap video that the the label didn't even want to put any money into. And I don't even remember seeing this video on MTV back then. Which one was that? I can't remember what it was. Uh, was uh, it the- they're 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 just. I think the band was performing in front of a green screen, and then they just projected a bunch of images behind them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember when A Small Victory came out, but right. I don't remember this video even getting much airplay at all, and it's such a great song, so it's really unfortunate. Yeah, well, the, label, yeah the label probably ran out of steam and didn't think it was going to do anything, because it was a much more challenging record to market and promote than, than certainly the real thing by far, so, you know. Yeah. So now we flip over to side two, and uh, the first song on side two is Malpractice, which was completely written by Mike Patton, I guess. Um, yeah. It's a pretty weird song. I would Like I said, it's it's almost more like a Mr. Bungle song, maybe. Yeah. I don't know if that's an offensive thing to say, but... No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I understand it's not your favorite song. It's not particularly my favorite song, but I... For me, it's it was it's these kind of songs are really important for the balance of the record because with all the melodicism and the thick, dense, cinematic, panoramic, you know, orchestrated, heavy art rock, whatever the hell they were doing, I think it's nice to have some songs that are kind of lean and mean that kind of just are a gut punch. I think this song was really effective. Uh, I think the the changes, you know, the time changes really reinforce and support Patton's lyrics. Obviously, it is kind of leaning towards Mr. Bungle, which is fine because that's where Patton came from. Yeah. And, um, but it's also really an organic song that, uh, you know, there's not a lot of fussing around with the song where, as they were with the other songs. So I think it's just, again, it's like someone's, you know, it's just a gut punch. That's all it is for me. But it, but it's, it's it's important that it's included, though. From what I've heard, this is one of two, I think, that were written in the studio. But I don't know if I that's think, accurate. Yeah, I, I think that is absolutely accurate. And I think that's reinforced by the fact there's that... Uh, four hours of video floating around YouTube yeah. of, of uh, Faith No More in the studio doing Angel's So you can see Pat sit down and play on bass guitar the basic changes to Jim Martin. Uh, and so I'm pretty sure it was kind of written in the studio. I mean, I guess you could say that he was aping that for the uh, for the cameras, but I think maybe Jim wasn't in rehearsal so much, and so that was when Patton kind of said, here's how the song's being built. Because by then we've already recorded the drums, all the basics, the, the drums and bass, and you know, maybe primary keyboards would have been done, so that makes sense that it was sort of written in the studio. You know, not yeah, not all of it, but but chunks of it.
So the next song, Kindergarten, is one of the only songs that Jim Martin was involved in the writing of, I guess. Right. This wouldn't be one of my favorites either. I guess these two songs are kind of a, a lull in the album for me. Yes, yeah, so I don't really know what to ask about Kindergarten. It's just well, kind of a there. Well, for, for me, I think Kindergarten, it kind of follows it in the footsteps of Malpractice in that it's a real, it's kind of a stripped-down yeah. lean version of, of Faith No More. It's the, one of the few songs that they can play live and it sounds just like the studio version because there wasn't a whole lot of stuff added to it. And so to me, it's kind of a clear, focused, kind of muscular, stripped down Faith No More. Uh, and uh, and I think it, you know, it doesn't have, didn't uh, warrant all the different layers and layers of, of sonic texture, you know. So again, I think this, this kind of belies the band's kind of internal kind of volley between, you know, dark and light, heavy and melodic and, uh, you know, thick and full to you know, more uh, lean and muscular. So to me, it, it, it again, fits in that. Also, it's one of them, I, I really like the song lyrically. So anyway. Yeah, yeah. Write it a hundred times. And the next song, Be Aggressive, is an insane <laughs> song written yeah. written completely by Roddy. Very funky. Yeah. Is that a talk box that Jim Martin is using? No, it's, no? it's, it's, it's his wah-wah. Okay. But yeah, what's, what's to me interesting about this song is that yeah, it's almost like old school. It's funky, but it's almost like old school like Stax or Motown. There's something about it that's just kind of... Uh, this song may have been called Motown. I can't remember, but uh, but anyway, it's got there's there's a, a vibe to it, and it's also the only song that I can think of in all of the Faith No More songs, and there there are like you know almost a hundred of them that that I know. Of. This one has a traditional sounding organ on it. You know, it's they've never had a thing where you go, oh, that just sounds like a B3 or that sounds like a pipe organ. And to me, that was really uh, interesting that Roddy did a much more traditional sound for this song, which made it sound unique because they were so used to doing unique and more you know, odd sonic textures. And so to have this come in there is almost like an alternative, quote unquote, to what they usually do. Yeah, unique is definitely a, a word to describe this song. <laughs> yeah. So how did the, who were the cheerleaders and how did that happen? Uh, you know what? I'm not sh- sure whose idea it was. It was probably Roddy's or Patton's, but but Patton went up to, uh, I think it was Eureka, where his dad's uh, his dad taught at a high school and he somehow corralled, uh, I don't know, two or three gals to sing the cheer. And, and in fact... It's possible it was already an existing cheer, uh, because it sounds you know it sounds like the kind of stuff I've heard in high schools before. That's kind of a high school kind of cheer. So, either Patton told them what to say, or Roddy did, or it was an existing cheer. And then Patton recorded, then I took it. And I and because it was uh, analog days, and I had to manually kind of cut that in there to be in time. But uh, but that was a, yeah, Patton recorded it. <laughs> it's great. I wonder if it was an existing cheer or if Mike made that up. That's. I'm Good gonna, question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talk to Pat and you have to ask him. It's great the way it works, though. I love it.
So the next song, A Small Victory, is my favorite song on the record. Uh, even though Everything's Ruined is, is more intricate and, and majestic and amazing, but A Small Victory is just such a great melody. And Mike has, he, he interjects the spoken bits, but there's, a lot, there's more singing, I guess, on yep. this one than a lot of the other ones. So how finished was this song when they brought it into this studio? Was it completely finished or were, were any of these songs like built part partially built in the studio or were they was the vision all there for a song no, like this for the basic songs are all there i remember being in rehearsal with the guys and we you know we i've always been a, a advocate uh of of pre-production and rehearsal so i know we spent a good two or three weeks in the studio in oakland working out all the arrangements and the parts and where everything went so you know basically when, when we did the basic tracking with drums bass and keyboards basically all these songs except for maybe like malpractice, uh, they all had kind of the foundational aspects. So not much of that would have changed in the studio. The biggest changes would be the addition of melodic and intricate and, you know, uh, other sonic things along with Patton's vocals. I wonder why this this song is so late in the album because it's so great. Weren't they, didn't they realize how great this song was? <laughs> or, or Oh yeah, well, I think so, but I think that to move this forward would have meant we've had to move a midlife crisis back because you know you, you can't we always want to keep it where there's a balance where you don't you hear like heavy and okay. and light and, mm-hmm. and, this. and so if you have like if you had midlife crisis into into a uh, small victory it, it would have people would have thought oh the, the band's become this kind of thing and that's we always wanted to keep the listener kind of fo- uh, you know paying attention and, and just seeing the different shades and facets of the band so Again, it you know your running order, your your sequence is really important. Like you know, what, you know you can make the album sound like a pop record if you stick all the pop stuff up front, and people listen and go, oh, the band's gone pop, uh, or or you scatter it so that people can go on a little musical journey with you. But yeah, obviously it's a great song. Could have put it earlier, but I think it would have meant that uh, midlife crisis and or everything's ruined would have had to have been moved back. Okay, so it's here for balance. I get it. I see. Yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah. because. Yeah, you want to have the listener on a musical journey, and you don't want them to ever have a sense of, oh, you know, the band is just this, because you have a concentration of uh, too much heavy stuff or too much pop. And, and it has to be uh, a little excursion where you kind of, uh, as, as an audience member, you kind of see the picture unfold in front of you. So you kind of hear something heavy, and then you go, oh, well, there's that right there, too. You know, oh, yeah, that's nice. You know, so having be aggressive in front of it, which is very, very different, is important. It almost. Uh, it's almost like a setting for a diamond. You need to make sure that you have something on either side that lets it shine and be its own thing, its own entity. And if you stick this next to Midlife Crisis, it might be they might both kind of overshadow each other, you know? Right.
So the next song, Crack Hitler, definitely lives up to its title as far as like the vibe <laughs> of the song. <laughs> um, uh, it's pretty insane, but it's got it's got a cool chorus. But I guess the the big question I had was about the hey hey part, like the heavy part. Um, what were the where did the haze come from? Was that a sample or a? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, this is done so long ago. Yeah. My memory of it is that I'm pretty sure. Uh, Roddy had a sample of the Hey thing. I think he, he got from some record or something like that. But probably in typical Faith in the More fashion, all the guys uh, sang on it too. So we, it would it would one sound bigger, but two more importantly have kind of their aesthetic and their feel to those Hey's. You know what I mean? So because uh, you know they, they, it's always important to have their kind of flavor, like whether it's on We Care a Lot or any of those other songs that the guys are in the background singing it. So it, it has that sense of them. Because sometimes they'll be singing there, kind of singing with a smile or goofing around and. And that kind of feeling has to always be able to kind of somewhat be in there as a subtext. Yeah, I wrote I wrote to you that this song feels like a seventies crime drama or yep. or even like a black exploitation <laughs> film or yeah. something. It's got that really great vibe. But like uh-huh. you had said earlier about cinematic, all of these songs, you know, you go from be aggressive to a small victory to this, they're all so different and each yeah. like live in their own world. It's uh, yeah. it's amazing. It is amazing. It's amazing that this group of guys can come up with music that's so uh, engaging and yet in each one has each song has kind of a different flavor and they and they they for me they're not i'm not saying in a financial commercial way but but just in an artistic way are very very successful that kind of whatever they try to do is successful and it's um they accomplish what they're they're set to do to invoke a feeling in the listener and uh you know whether or not it sells i don't think they think about that they're just i mean obviously if they thought about selling records they would have made a completely different record than angel does but i think they just finally had the opportunity to push in all the boundaries and really try to do something you know it's great what mike does with it it seems like so much thought went into it and then they call it crack hitler (laughs) yeah yeah well that's because uh yeah yeah isn't that funny yeah yeah well you're right i mean it's interesting because these guys always were you know, all completely, a hundred percent, all in. You know that. Yeah. They, you know these these guys weren't like stoners who just happened to stumble upon uh, a formula. They they these guys were always like focused and dedicated and just determined to just keep pushing hard against this any kind of encumbrances or any kind of anything that would kind of corral them. They always wanted to kind of break out and and kind of pull the audience with them. You know, that was always kind of I think their thing. You know.
So then the, the next song, Jizzlabber, is this is the one that Jim Martin wrote by himself. And yeah, yeah. speaking of song titles. Yes. <laughs> um, so is this what he wanted the whole record to sound like? <laughs> or, you know, because this, this is Jim Martin's song on the album, right? So Yeah. I mean, that's, a good, that's actually a really good question. I mean, is this the way he won the whole song? I mean, I think uh, in some ways, Jim Martin would have been much happier with a hard rock or metal kind of album. And I think that this kind of music, certainly, he would have liked to have more of it on the record. Um, and uh, I mean, I certainly get where he's coming from. But for me, he, we just need that kind of flavor in every song. You know, if we did every song like this, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a Faith the More record. You know, they don't, they don't want to be categorized as a heavy metal band, and they certainly don't want to get up on stage and play heavy metal every night they, they all have such you know different uh, unique you know amalgam of influences you know everyone's so eclectic that they they like to kind of bounce back and forth to things they like to play heavy heavy music but then they want to follow it with something lighter and melodic so to me it's uh yeah i mean it's a gym song it's kind of similar to malpractice in that they both kind of rely heavily on riffs more than aesthetic and you know it's uh, it, again it balances the album you know it just it makes you remember, oh yeah, these guys can play heavy, ugly music too, along with you know, things like uh, you know, midlife crisis or you know, a small victory. You know, it's really important that they they they're, they're balanced. Well, Jim was in a high school band with Cliff Burton, right? Isn't that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. metal and roots yeah, there. Right? <laughs> yeah, I think Mike Borden was too. I think played with them for a while. But yeah, he and Cliff Burton were definitely they were friends and played played music and yeah, they that was they came from a similar cloth. So. You can see, you know, Jim probably would have easily fit into a band like Metallica if he could have, you know. But for whatever reason, he got stuck in with a bunch of art rockers and he kind of brought what they needed. And again, it's that push and pull, that continual kind of grinding against each other that really creates this kind of music. And I think it's like the, um, it's like that grain of sand that's the that's the irritation inside an oyster. And then be, by doing that, you end up with this pearl. That's what, The pearl is just this irritation that's kind of covered over with this goop and it makes something beautiful and i think that's what a real kind of metaphor for who faith no more are because they're always kind of bumping up against each other and each guy to me i always describe this band as like a as like a five trajectory spider web and each guy's pulling equally in, in his own direction away from the center and because one guy can pull really hard in one direction there's a guy on the other side who's countering that and that 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 countering and contrast and push and pull is what creates this kind of music because Jim could have been in a metal band but that wouldn't be Faith No More and Faith No More could have could make music without Jim Martin but it wouldn't be Faith No More I mean it's really that it's really for me important was that internal conflict's not the right word but that that continual kind of grinding and pushing against one another and and trying to champion your own sound and your own ideas and then out of that comes this this thing that's just so amazing and forward thinking and and gorgeous and ugly you know it's it's pretty pretty terrific yeah that was the band such a mixture of styles and personalities oh yeah to to create what they created together which was unlike anything else yeah i mean i've I've, almost bands to me always feel somewhat homogeneous where they you know there's the guys always kind of you see like oh they're all kind of cut from the same cloth you know all the guys in metallica yeah none of those guys are going to go hey let's play this really pretty melodic thing and all the guys in system of a down they're going to go a certain direction i mean each band they all are kind of sort of unified even though they have internal conflicts about certain aesthetic choices but with this band man they're all just completely different and the fact that they can even get together and make music is a, is a miracle you know i mean really it is i mean there's just you know roddy's classically trained mike borden studied african drumming and rhythms at, at uc berkeley you know 
uh, Bill Gould, you know, I don't even know where the hell Bill comes from, but he's the engine that kind of propels a lot of this stuff. I mean, his a lot of his demos and early stuff were really what kind of drove this band for me. And, and, and I want him one day to bring out his original four-track demo of Epic because it's it's all the all the stuff is there on this little four track. Everything's there. He he's always been kind of a a visionary, kind of driving behind the scenes kind of guy, you know. I mean, the, and and of course Patton and Mike Borden, everyone kind of brings their thing to the table, you know. It's really uh, and, and and Chuck Mosley, they all do. They all brought something special. And then they end the album with Midnight Cowboy, which I guess this is like where the credits play in yep, the movie, exactly. right? <laughs> yep, yep. And so how serious were they putting this on the record? Was it was it a joke? Was it tongue in cheek or you know? I don't think I don't think that's the thing about Faith No More. I don't think you know, I don't think this is tongue in cheek at all. I think this was very serious. I think we did a very, very faithful rendition of a song. We didn't we didn't fuck it up, we didn't do anything to make uh, fun of it and, and uh it's really interesting because I was always a big fan of this song, but I, I certainly didn't mention it to them to put it on the record. I think it just came from them. And, um, you know, uh, I think the crux of Faith, this this is kind of the crux of Faith No More, where you just, you know, Midnight Cowboy and even the song Easy come from a genuine place within most of the guys in the band. They really, really like this kind of music. And they, and as, as much as they like heavy and relatively complex music, they also appreciate, quote-unquote, easy listening music, too, and the melodicism of it. And the... Uh, you know, to me, it's always they, they play things because they really like it. They they may you know have a bit of you know sarcasm or a bit of a goofiness to it on occasion, but this song was was never uh, you know it was never that. It was it was uh, you know it was I think it was a genuine thing. You know, um, for me anyway, I think they uh, and I think part of this is is their influence, but and it also goes along with them trying to intentionally or unintentionally kind of confound their listeners to see if they get it you know they want to they want to see how savvy their their fans are how musically savvy they are and see if they're willing to invest you know in the band and follow with them you know i mean this is a band that is not like uh you can just put it on and be background you need to kind of go what the hell are they thinking and you know do i like this music you know does it speak to me does it not and i think this, this is one of those bands that has always continually challenged their listeners, you know, to greater or lesser extent, you know, and so, uh, you know, they're they're always like, you know, hey, are you along with us for this journey? Are you willing to kind of open your minds to something kind of you wouldn't expect to like, you know? And, and I think, you know, they're asking heavy metalers if they want to listen to some melodic music, and they're asking people who are into pop and melody if they like to hear, you know, heavy metal guitar in their music, you know. So to me, they've always, this is kind of this is who they are, and I think this is a song that. I just love this version, and I think they did too. I don't think there's anything humorous about it. They were probably just like, "How cool would it be to play the album out with the Midnight Cowboy theme?" Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's always the kind of thing that one guy probably says it, and the other guys are like, "Fuck you, we're not going to do that," or "That's stupid," <laughs> or, or like, oh, "Okay, let's see if we can do it." You know. And to me, the what I really uh, admire about this band is that one guy can say can kind of grab the torch and go, "Let's go in this direction." Now he can't go so far in that direction that it becomes his kind of album but they can go oh you want to sing a song about sucking dick and swallowing let's go oh you want to put midnight cowboy in the album all right let's do it you know you you, you know they're they're they always i'll say this band has always backed each other when they one guy says i really want to do this kind of thing and they're like you know uh, i'm not sure if i like it or oh uh, maybe or okay great let's let's do it let's let's see if we can pull it off and to me 
this band, unlike any other band, <clears throat> they, they, there's an individuality in the band itself, but also within the band. Each band member has an individuality, and they really are always kind of pushing to see who can kind of, not from an ego level, but they want to push their musical ideas to the forefront. And each guy, the other guys are going to wrestle with them and say, yes, a little bit of this, but not too much of that. And, you know, yeah, we, we, we feel you, but 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 we still need to sound like Faith No More. So I don't know. They're an amazing band, man. I, I've never seen anything like these guys. Yeah, there there never was anything. Yeah. <laughs> like, Baffling and uh, challenging and ultimately satisfying to you know listen to their music because it's so nuanced and you can listen years later and go, whoa, what the hell is that? I know they put that in there, you know. So it's uh, there's a lot of a lot of good stuff in what they're trying to do. I saw a quote where Mike Patton said, "We want people to put this record on and say, what the hell is this?'" But that's not he's not being serious, you know. <laughs> yeah, I I, th- I think I think okay. I don't think that he wants the fans to 100% say that, but I think every guy in the band would agree that, yeah, we would like all of our audience to at least a quarter of the time kind of go, what the fuck are these guys thinking? Right. You know what I mean? And for me, Faith No More is always the balance of how much do you want to challenge your listener? Uh, because they do want to challenge the listeners, but you don't want to be like an asshole and just uh, you know alienate your listeners. You know, You want to go... Hey, are you long with for the ride with this? Are you are you willing to invest? I mean, I think you have to invest yourself. This is not the kind of music that's going to just you know you're going to easily fall into. You're you have to invest your time, energy, and uh, you know interest in, in the, and they have always done that. And so that, I think that there's always a push and pull with their audience, you know, where they're like, hey, are you are you willing to yeah yeah let's yeah let's throw this on there and see if that the the audience will follow if they'll go along with us. Like even putting that song easy, you know, putting that out, that's like. You know, no, no self-respecting art band slash funk metal slash heavy rock, whatever the hell you want to call Faith Nor would would put out a song like Easy, but that's a song that came from a true place. It wasn't like, oh, let's do a cover and make money because they could have picked a lot of other songs to do that with. But Easy comes from a place that they like to play. You know, they, I think they started playing that thing live, and it was like, well, let's let's record it. You know, so that's uh, that's just kind of part of parcel with who these guys are. You know. Yeah, and then I remember when that single came out, they also included a insane polka in, sung in German. Oh yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> so, a <shooting> fest. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, but that's really that's really these guys. You know, they're like, we want you to like our music because we're trying to be somewhat popular. But but by the way, we're also going to really kind of you know poke you in the <laughs> eye once in a while and kind of go, yep, now you have to listen to this just das Schützenfest in German. You know, and it's obviously just such a squirrely song, but uh, you know. That's Faith No More. Yeah. 
Morgen, Sommermorgen. Yeah, I would say it never feels like they're being weird on purpose. It just feels like no. they're being interesting and just never boring, you know? Yeah, they're never boring. And by the way, they're always trying to inspire and entertain themselves first and foremost. Right, You know, right. They really want to put out music that they like, and they, they hope that, they've always hoped that they find an audience of people who, who are kind of like them. Like, yeah, we like kind of art, rock, slash, whatever, and we're up for the journey, and we want to listen to some of your stuff. You know, that's what I think.
thank you so much, Matt, for talking to me. And I'm glad that, you know, I inspired you to go back and listen to this record. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's so great. What a great accomplishment for everybody involved. So it's too bad it didn't get the recognition it deserved at the time, but it's definitely, you know, it's lived on in the culture and, you know, the people that know about it love it for the right reasons. So it's, yeah, exactly. it's still out there to discover for people who haven't discovered it. And like I said, I always just pull it out and put it on. If I'm ever going to go on a road trip, this is one of the CDs that's going to be going along, you know, so. I'm going to start listening to it again just as, a, as an audience member now, because now yeah. there's so much years distance, you know, I can kind of, uh, I can kind of go, okay, well, you know, I can listen to it and kind of just enjoy it, which I finally did this morning for the first time in, you know, like 30 years, I was listening to it for this interview. I was like, wow, this is like a really good album. You know, yeah, it just, really is, yeah. As, as a civilian, as a listener, I was just like, man, this is really cool. I, I really like this because uh, it was such a difficult record to make. So I'm just happy that I can kind of listen to it and enjoy it and kind of go, oh, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot for talking to me. It's been great. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, Yelp, if you have any questions or want me to clarify anything. And once again, I really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to, to do this with you. And so thank you so much. Thank you.
be back. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 